Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, let me welcome you back. As we reflect on the impact of the past four years on our vision of a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel, and as we look ahead to what the next four years may bring, we are seeking to frame our work with a set of policy recommendations for the Biden administration and members of Congress. This package of proposals aims to achieve a realistic reset in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship and Israeli security, rebuilding U.S.-Palestinian ties, expanding Israel's regional integration, and preserving a political horizon for a two-state solution. The Realistic Reset Project will define the work of Israel Policy Forum in the months ahead with special podcasts, articles, and other digital resources, and will inform our work on Capitol Hill. We are excited to further explore some of these topics with you on today's webinar. Today's webinar is made possible by the generous support of our donors. For those donors joining us today, thank you. Your generosity is critical in helping us reach tens of thousands of policymakers community leaders, journalists, and interested individuals like today's audience members. If you are not yet an Israel Policy Forum donor, please join us and visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving to make a gift today. Thank you. Now, on to today's program. As I mentioned, one of the pillars of our realistic reset model is strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship. And today, we're most fortunate to be joined by a good friend of Israel Policy Forum, and a good friend of ours, mine, who knows that relationship extremely well, Ambassador Dan Shapiro. Dan is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and served as U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 2011 to 2017. He previously served as Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa on the U.S. National Security Council. With that, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Susie. Great to be with Israel Policy Forum. Thank you so much. Um, so to start things off, Dan, the Biden administration, as you know, has publicly committed itself to two state parameters. What is the significance of this, given that the administration has also stated that it does not want to see restarting a peace process as an immediate priority? Sure. Well, look, I do think it's important that they have established this very clearly as the strategic objective of U.S. policy, which is different from the near-term uh, effort that they will uh, necessarily be undertaking. Uh, but they've stated it very clearly uh, that the goal of U.S. policy remains uh, and the U.S. interest remains to achieve a two-state solution that is the end of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it has been described by Secretary of State Blinken and others as the only uh, conceivable end of this conflict in which Israel can remain a Jewish and democratic state and in which uh, Palestinians can achieve their legitimate uh, rights for statehood in a place of, in a state of their own. So first of all, just having that as a, as a, uh, a, a clearly stated objective, I think is very important. But I really want to make sure we think for a minute and emphasize uh, the, uh, the way they uh, talk about democracy. This is not uh, something that's unique to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, among the 
uh, challenges that uh, President Biden has identified and Secretary of State Blinken have identified in the world is uh, challenges to democratic institutions across the democratic world, obviously, including in the United States. We've had almost a near-death experience of our own democracy, uh, culminating in a a violent insurrection at the Capitol uh, just about two months ago. So we're in no position to state that others don't have their own challenges, and every other democracy in Europe and elsewhere has some version of this. Uh, But that coming back to the theme of how will Israel remain a Jewish and democratic state is important because what President Biden has also talked about uh, is his intention to strengthen the camp of democracies, uh, to have democratic nations stand together uh, and demonstrate that that system of government is the one that is most effective in uh, meeting the needs and serving the, the interests and serving the rights of their citizens at a time when autocracies, Russia, China, and others are trying to make the opposite case, that in fact their model is the model that should prevail and try to recruit others to their uh, their side. So anything in that context that strengthens Israeli democracy will also strengthen the U.S.-Israel uh, relationship. Anything that would, uh, over time, uh, raise questions as uh, is, is stated when uh, the worry is of Israel not being a Jewish or democratic state, obviously uh, could pose challenges. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is important to say is that uh, they have said this is their clear policy to provide a realistic picture uh, of what they're working toward. And that's helpful for others, Israelis, Palestinians, other Arab states, Europeans, and others who are interested in, in this uh, part of the world uh, to adjust their own expectations and adjust their own policies accordingly. Um, but even more importantly, it becomes an organizing principle, an organizing framework, if you will, uh, to measure uh, all of the actions that the United States will take and that others take. Uh, so I think they'll be asking themselves the question as the policy unfolds in the in the weeks and months to come. Does a given U.S. policy, does a given U.S. action, statement, posture uh, promote the achievement ultimately of that two-state uh, solution or not? Uh, are U.S. policies and programs and diplomatic postures consistent with achieving that uh, two-state uh, outcome or not? Uh, and as I said, it's a tool to assess the actions. Uh, of other uh, parties uh, as well. But as you also stated, they have coupled that very clear principle uh, with a realistic assessment uh, that the time is not ripe uh, for uh, direct talks for negotiations. Uh, uh, The Secretary Blinken was very clear about that in his confirmation hearing. He doesn't see a near-term opportunity. Uh, The same leaders are in place for now over a decade, Netanyahu and Abbas, who clearly don't trust each other, who clearly have participated in negotiations that didn't succeed. Uh, the domestic politics on both sides with elections coming up, certainly in Israeli, maybe also on the Palestinian side, are extremely complex. The attitudes, very uh, uh, well measured in uh, professional opinion polls, show much more despair, certainly less desire and and, and belief that two states is, is optimal. So uh, they aren't going to uh, run full speed at that brick wall. Uh, rather, they're going to work on improving conditions on the ground and they're, they're through that trying to lay the groundwork for f- some future talks, but in the process, keeping alive, that's really the focus at the moment, keeping alive that strategic objective of a two-state solution. And how is the Biden administration's work with Israel impacted by the Trump parameters laid out in last year's Peace to Prosperity Plan? 
I don't know that it is much uh, impacted. Uh, we haven't heard much about the Trump plan in many months. Uh, once it became clear uh, that President Trump was uh, not going to uh, serve a second term, uh, that plan seemed to lose a lot of currency. Now and then uh, an Israeli official or think tank uh, scholar will suggest uh, it still has some resonance, but one doesn't hear uh, very much about it. But it's a huge change uh, what uh, the Biden administration talks about when they mean a two-state solution from what President Trump laid out in that plan. Now, actually, it was the first time in his four years, this was at the beginning of year four, that he actually used the phrase two-state solution. The, 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 the Trump plan does actually use that phrase. Um, but it doesn't describe actually a two-state solution, it describes something else. It describes uh, isolated islands of very limited Palestinian autonomy, nothing that can be called a state or sovereign in any uh, measure, uh, surrounded by uh, annexed areas of, uh, of the West Bank. Um, it was, of course, worked out only in talks with Israel. There was no Palestinian input uh, into it. Um, and so I think it will be important to be clear uh, over time. It may not be in the first couple of months, but uh, that uh, that's not the model. Uh, when the Biden administration speaks of their goal of two states, that's not the model. And indeed, the Trump plan was a real outlier, really an aberration, if you will, from what any previous administration of both parties, certainly since negotiations uh, began, uh, became serious in the Oslo era of the Clinton and Bush, Clinton and Bush and Obama administrations, uh, all had a different concept of what that two-state solution they were uh, working toward was than, uh, and, and something a lot more in common across them than what uh, President Trump uh, laid out. Um, now, there could be some useful concepts within the Trump uh, plan on regional matters, maybe on economic matters, uh, maybe on some, some uh, economic development opportunities. Um, and so it's possible that one can find and draw out the, the useful elements. But as a whole, I don't think it will have much influence on the uh, Biden approach. Um, and it'll be important to make that clear at some point. They'll have to decide whether they will, in a formal way, discard it uh, or just ignore it. Uh, but I think uh, either way, uh, it's becoming clear by the day that that's not the model. And so that plan won't be very relevant going forward. Let me just ask a follow about this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Trump plan because we have a lot of other things to talk about. But in terms of the mindset of Israeli politicians, and as you note, there's an election coming up exactly two weeks from today, and a couple of people who would like to unseat Prime Minister Netanyahu, Gidon Saar, and Naftali Bennett, uh, certainly have not uh, made any pretense of their commitment to annexing the West Bank. As you know, Dan, the Trump plan envisioned annexing 30% of the West Bank, Area C. Um, so just from the standpoint of Israeli political figures, and maybe it's not a feature, an issue in this election per se, but do you think the Trump plan from an Israeli standpoint is still relevant? Is this something that has moved the goalposts for is Israeli elected officials at all, or can we just sort of toss it onto the dustbin of history? Well, it's interesting how little discussion there is of it uh, in the Israeli election campaign, really of the Palestinian issue generally, but uh, anything about annexation, anything about the Trump plan, or even expectations for what uh, President Biden will do, uh, it's hardly uh, on the public's agenda. Now, it's true that uh, at least the two parties you mentioned, Yudon Sars' New Hope Party and Naftali Bennett's Yamina Party, 
uh, are essentially, as we understand it, uh, supportive of, of annexation. Uh, but recall, it was really taken off the table by Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, at the time of the uh, normalization agreement with the United Arab Emirates. Uh, it was a commitment made to the UAE for a specific number of years uh, that they would not return to uh, annexation. The UAE has cited uh, numerous times. In fact, their ambassador in Washington, Yusuf el just said it last week, uh, that this was one of the core reasons they chose that moment uh, to normalize, was to take annexation off the table. So it would be quite a, a reversal of that commitment to, at any time in the coming years, go back to that. But it was also said clearly at the time that annexation could only take place with the support of the United States. The Trump administration was somewhat divided on whether that annexation should take place right up front or only as a later outgrowth of talks. Uh, And when it became clear that uh, the prevailing view was that it shouldn't happen uh, up front, uh, it was on hold uh, until there was an agreement to do it. While there will never be, uh, in my judgment, uh, of course, I don't speak for the Biden administration, but there would never be uh, a moment when a Biden administration will uh, give an American approval or imprimatur to, uh, to annexation. So I think uh, Israelis generally understand that this is not uh, on the agenda. Uh, the Trump plan itself, as I said, doesn't get much uh, much discussion. Now, uh, look, in four years or in eight years, uh, depending on what's happened on the ground and depending on who returns to office or, or who, who is in office uh, in the United States, one could imagine uh, some Israeli leader trying to resurrect the Trump plan or aspects of it. Uh, but it, it won't have much life in it for the next four years. And I think it's going to be hard to see it returning to relevance uh, after that time. But obviously, there's so many unknowns associated with that prediction. You're muted, Susie. I don't know how I did that. I didn't touch it. Oh, well, it's the poltergeist in my MacBook. Um, on annexation, while, as you just alluded to, Dan, the Emiratis made uh abandoning formal annexation, which looked very real last summer. We remember, you know, the July 1st deadline, and it looked like it was going to happen. And then, as you pointed out, BB pulled back because of the Abraham Accords, particularly with the UAE. But at the same time, there is creeping annexation that's going on. Um, there's There are facts that are changing on the ground. And it's it's sort of interesting to me that the Emiratis, I don't know if they are paying attention to that aspect of real politic in Israel today. I'm referring specifically to examples like Givat Hamatos, which is looking more likely to actually get built, uh, which, as you know, harms the contiguity between Bethlehem, Ramallah, Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, uh, and other. there are other moves being taken to retroactively recognize illegal outposts and make them settlements. So I do think even if formal annexation is not an issue right now, we do have to maintain a concern about de facto, if not de jure annexation. Just wondering if you have any further thoughts on that before I move on. Well, when we talk about uh, the Biden administration using the commitment uh, to a two-state solution on the model that we're more accustomed to uh, as the measure uh, for how to judge its own posture and own policies, but also how to judge the actions of others, I think that's very relevant here. Uh, Secretary Blinken has said repeatedly uh, that uh, uh, the United States opposes unilateral steps by either side that will make it harder to achieve a two-state solution. 
uh, he specifies uh, the expansion of settlements uh, as one of those. Uh, he specifies discussion of annexation uh, as one of those. He, of course, specifies actions by the Palestinians, payments to terrorists in prison, uh, other forms of delegitimization and, and incitement to violence. Uh, and so there's a clear expectation that uh, the parties will uh, not take those actions, which are fundamentally at odds with uh, that two-state outcome. And a creeping annexation is different from a formal all-at-once annexation, but it certainly is inconsistent. And I think uh, that will be a discussion. And I think it is already a discussion uh, between Israel and the UAE uh, and perhaps some of the other Arab states who have either already normalized or are considering normalizing. I, I work with uh, some wonderful colleagues at, at INSS who have uh, traveled to uh, Abu Dhabi since the uh, uh, since the agreement was reached and are in regular touch now with co uh, colleagues there. Um, and it is indeed a, a subject that comes up uh, that the UAE expectations of what, how, how this relationship will unfold uh, are now hitting some interesting uh, uh, confrontations with the reality. Uh, they were told annexation was off the table, but they can see some other things are happening. Um, there's, of course, Israeli politics going on, which makes it a little hard to sometimes proceed with certain uh, other aspects of the relationship. Prime Minister Netanyahu's intended visit to uh, the UAE has been postponed a number of times. It appears it won't happen before the election. So the UAE is figuring out how this uh, reality comports with what their expectations were. And it's not just about them. Of course, if we look over the horizon to other Arab states who hopefully will also take a big step toward normalization, and everyone asks about the Saudis, uh, there is a, a reasonable expectation that those Arab states also will come with expectations, requests, uh, some uh, desire not to be embarrassed if they move forward with annexation and uh, want to not see uh, actions taken by Israel that really uh, undercut the prospects of two states. Broadly speaking, Dan, how are Israelis responding to a new U.S. administration after four years of high levels of public support in Israel for President Trump? Uh, you know, from my discussions with Israelis and, you know, my uh, uh, close following of the Israeli uh, media and public discourse, I think there's a, a broad understanding that uh, Joe Biden uh, is, a, is a friendly president. Uh, he has a history and a, a kind of a deeply uh, personal uh, commitment that he has uh, uh, really carried out throughout his, his long uh, career in politics to the U.S.-Israel partnership, to Israel's security, to defending Israel anywhere its legitimacy is called into question. There's actually a lot of appreciation, for the very strong, firm U.S. response to the International Criminal Court uh, declaring that it would open an investigation of alleged Israeli war crimes. Uh, so I think there is a, a, a lot of appreciation and understanding of that. I think there's also an understanding that he's not Donald Trump. Uh, and one, you know, from an Israeli perspective might say for better or worse, uh, they may see that he won't be uh, uh, supportive in, on every issue and in every way uh, that President Trump was. On the other hand, uh, there's no small measure of relief being expressed quietly, maybe, uh, but that the end of the Trump era, uh, Trump era, especially after the way it ended uh, at the Capitol, um, is producing a more normal, more stable uh, kind of U.S. politics and, and U.S. administration. Uh, but I'll have to be honest, there really isn't all that much coverage uh, and all that much discussion of U.S. Middle East policy so far, uh, particularly relating to the Palestinians, which has mostly been done sort of quietly, maybe a little bit more on Iran, which I guess we'll talk about in a bit. Um, 
And I'd say for two reasons. One is because it is clear to everybody who observes this that uh, the Middle East is not as high a priority. It's not unimportant, but it is not of the same level of importance uh, as the urgent pressing matters uh, that President Biden inherited, uh, crises that really probably no president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt has inherited, and that his total focus on COVID relief and economic recovery and racial justice and climate change, and in the international arena, restoring the alliances with NATO and the Asian partners, reestablishing American leadership in multilateral forums and on big transnational issues, uh, dealing with the uh, now global strategic rivalry with China and dealing with an aggressive Russia. When you put all of those issues on the table first, as this administration has consistently from day one, it's clear that the Middle East is going to get uh, not the same level of urgent attention right up front and from the highest levels uh, as it maybe has uh, in the past. But the other reason there isn't all that much discussion of this is because Israelis, quite understandably, are caught up uh, in their own uh, matters. There's an election in two weeks, as you said, and it's the fourth election in uh, just over a year. Um, people are, uh, are over two years, I should say. Um, and so people are following that very closely. There's the uh, fairly successful Israeli vaccine distribution and the excitement that that brings of possible uh, reopening of the country as uh, uh, they maybe will get on top of the coronavirus, but with some lingering uh, anxiety about the rather chaotic decision-making around other aspects of managing the pandemic. Uh, so Israelis are, as you'd expect, focused on what's happening in Israel a lot more than, what, uh, than what's happening in Washington. Makes sense. Um, in its final months, the Trump administration instituted a number of policies reshaping the American approach to its relationship with Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. For instance, there was the new product labeling policy for West Bank settlement exports and the lifting of geographic restrictions barring U.S. taxpayer funding for scientific and commercial projects in the settlements. Where do these stand now? Well, I don't want to speak, obviously, for, for the Biden administration and can't make a specific prediction about actions. Uh, I assume those specific uh, 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 Trump decisions that you mentioned uh, relating to, to settlements uh, are under review uh, and they uh, will be reviewed. Um, but I do look, I do believe over time, uh, as they conduct these reviews, they will reverse uh, or at least modify in significant ways a number of uh, steps that President Trump took uh, that they will assess, and I would probably agree with that assessment, are inconsistent uh, with uh, the uh, the the goal of a of a two state of a two state outcome. Uh, you mentioned settlement labeling um, uh, or pr- settlement product labeling. Uh, well, uh, you know to label products coming from uh, Area C in the West Bank, which has always been an area that is still to be negotiated, uh, most of it anyway, uh, and hasn't been annexed. Actually, Israel walked away from the opportunity to annex it last year, uh, and is not technically Israel, not legally Israel in that sense. It's not accurate to label uh, uh, products coming from those areas as, as made in Israel. Um, and, and so I think that's, uh, uh, you know, to be consistent with the posture of promoting two states, I think uh, uh, there'd be a, a strong logic to, to, to change or reverse that one. You mentioned funding for scientific and commercial projects uh, in uh, West Bank settlements. Um, again, one can uh, look at that and, and see if it, uh, it, it can be modified or sustained, but uh, 
you know, uh, supporting uh, uh, activities that uh, are inconsistent with the goal of limiting settlement expansion by providing some kind of encouragement, economic or, or scientific cooperation encouragement to it, is inconsistent with that goal uh, that they have stated uh, of a two-state uh, outcome. So while they're trying to discourage the one, it wouldn't make a, a great deal of sense uh, to uh, encourage the other. As I said, there are uh, clear uh, lines they've drawn to discourage Palestinian actions as well. Uh, there is assistance that the Trump administration canceled uh, for the Palestinian Authority under the Taylor Force Act uh, because of the uh, payments that the Palestinian Authority makes to terrorists who've committed acts of violence and are in Israeli prisons. Um, uh, that President Biden has expressed support for that uh, restriction. But there, is also, there are also streams of assistance that don't go to the Palestinian Authority, that go to Palestinian hospitals, to the Palestinian people, humanitarian organizations uh, to provide you know, basic economic uh, and humanitarian relief uh, that are permitted under the Taylor Force Act. And so uh, I could certainly imagine uh, the Biden administration reversing some of that uh, restriction, but keeping others of that in place in order to keep uh, clear to the Palestinians that that action of paying those salaries uh, to those prisoners is not consistent uh, with that goal of, of a two-state solution. Um, and then, of course, there's the uh, closure uh, of the U.S. consulate uh, in uh, consul general, consulate general in Jerusalem. Uh, what President Biden has said very clearly, and Secretary Blinken has re- repeated, is that the U.S. embassy will remain uh, in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is recognized as Israel's capital, and those are now uh, not going to be reversed uh, as President Trump changed them. But uh, the accompanying closure uh, and, and immer- submersion of the U.S. Consulate General into the embassy uh, may very well be reversed because uh, the U.S. diplomatic posture of having two separate missions uh, that can speak separately to these two separate entities, the State of Israel and the Palestinian Authority, uh, would be consistent with the ultimate goal uh, of a two-state solution. And frankly, right now, we don't have the ability to conduct normal diplomatic discourse with the Palestinian Authority because they don't speak to the uh, U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. They only call directly to Washington. So uh, there's a number of uh, steps that I think will be reversed. Some may be modified rather than reversed. But again, I think they're all going to be subject to that test of uh, does this action, does this U.S. program, does this U.S. diplomatic posture, uh, is it consistent with our uh, our longstanding goal uh, and now reestablished goal of two states. And if it is, uh, it can be sustained. And if it's not, it will probably have to be changed. And some of these steps that we're talking about, um, as you alluded to, the fact that the Biden administration has expressed its intention to re-engage with the Palestinians, who, of course, were really completely left out of uh, the lead up to the peace to prosperity unveiling. Um, so the Biden administration has signaled it will re-engage with the Palestinians both diplomatically and by resuming humanitarian aid, which again was cut off by the Trump administration. How will these moves play in Israel? Well, um, I think that um, there are actually a lot of Israelis who understand that it uh, also serves Israel's interests for the United States to be able to talk to the Palestinians. Uh, now, of course, the Palestinians bore some responsibility for that cutoff of connection. They m- made that decision after the uh, recognition of Jerusalem as the capital and after the transfer of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. I frankly think that was a mistake on their part. Um, uh, 
so, you know, they have some, uh, some role to play here as well. Uh, but ultimately, when the United States can't speak uh, in any authoritative way and has no discourse uh, of any quality to with the Palestinians, it's hard to deliver any outcomes for Israel as well. I don't think that in that sense, the Trump administration did deliver very much. They delivered a plan that couldn't be implemented, uh, which, uh, you know, maybe some Israelis found appealing, but ultimately didn't go anywhere because it was really a very, uh, it was produced in a very one-sided uh, faction, fashion. Um, you know, we mentioned, I think, earlier the uh, so there is some understanding of a need to de- to engage the Palestinians, but there are problems. The ICC uh, decision uh, to open this investigation is very problematic, not only because uh, the U.S. opposes it. It's kind of an echo of something that happened five years ago. That was when the Palestinians first turned to the ICC and this proposal has been kicking around in The Hague for, for years and only now, Dafka, you could say at the beginning of the Biden administration, does it kind of land uh, with a thud on the table. And it uh, unfortunately has been praised by the Palestinians as a, as a piece of good news. Well, not surprisingly, given that they were the ones who initiated it, but not, not helpfully in any way. Uh, there may be a chance to um, uh, push that to the side as a new prosecutor comes into office later this year. Uh, but we'll see. That's a, that, that's a problem. And, and it has come back uh, to kind of uh, haunt and bite all of us who care about this issue right at a, an inopportune time. Um, but then again, if the administration, through this dialogue with the Palestinians, can produce results uh, and there's real progress that Israelis uh, can see, if, in fact, the Palestinians are serious, as some say they are, and there's clearly some interesting internal discourse around changing the law uh, so that there will not be uh, payments made to prisoners based on the number of years they serve, therefore uh, seeming to incentivize uh, you know, uh, acts of violence. Uh, if uh, the Palestinians, through the discourse with the United States, will come to take a different attitude about the normalization agreements with the Arab states, which they originally rejected, later returned their ambassadors to the UAE and Bahrain, and you know, now are at least toying with the idea that maybe they can be participants in this process, uh, I think Israelis will be quite open to the fact that they may find some benefit to that uh, American-Palestinian uh, dialogue. So let's turn briefly now to the subject of Iran. The Biden campaign pledged to seek to re-enter the JCPOA nuclear deal, but has moved more slowly than some observers expected it to on this front. How does this and will it impact the U.S. relation, U.S.-Israel relationship? The U.S., uh, I think, has been very clear, really going back uh, into the latter months of the campaign, the Biden administration and uh, campaign transition and, and administration, of its intention uh, to uh, try to return to the uh, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, in the context of mutual compliance, uh, in which uh, Iran obviously would have to resume uh, uh, living up to all of its obligations, and it's in violation of many of them, uh, which, of course, has meant that it's much closer to the threshold of a nuclear breakout than it was when it was uh, under the deal. Uh, I can't say that's a widely popular position in Israel. Uh, Many people in Israel uh, shared the criticisms of the JCPOA at the time uh, that it was signed and that Prime Minister Netanyahu voiced them, including in a a speech in Congress. Uh, Not everybody. There are a, a range of views on it. Some who found it uh, uh, more uh, uh, positive, let's say, at least in its early years than the prime minister did, uh, now say, well, it's five or six years in and it's much closer to the sunset clauses, so going back into the deal uh, would be problematic. So, 
you know, there's no question that there are, is a disagreement or a difference of opinion uh, on that approach. I want to say, you know, unanimously across the Israeli system. In fact, just in recent days, we've heard some Israeli voices uh, from the security establishment say, actually, going back into the JCP might not be such a terrible thing. Um, but a critical mass probably runs the other way. At the same time, I think there is some appreciation uh, that the Biden administration is showing some patience, uh, is not rushing uh, back into this deal. Uh, in fact, uh, has said very clearly and consistently from the beginning that Iran will have to reach uh, compliance uh, with its uh, requirements under the deal in order to get the sanctions relief that the deal requires. It's not going to go in the in the reverse uh, order. Uh, there was a certainly a very uh, a lot of note taken uh, in the uh, strike conducted on the Shia militia uh, in Syria following a, a attack on a, a base with U.S. forces, uh, probably other Shia militia in Iraq, um, in all cases, almost certainly uh, backed by Iran. Um, uh, there's also concern because Iran continues to kind of go crazy in the region with strikes uh, in the Gulf and strikes on ships and strikes uh, yet another strike on a U.S. base. So uh, there's a lot of concern about that. Uh, but uh, there is, I think, an understanding of the Biden administration, even if they disagree on the on this, this first step uh, is trying to do this in a, uh, in, in a smart way. Again, it's not the highest item on the agenda uh, with the elections and with the corona, even though you would think that Iran always dominates, it really, it really doesn't dominate. Um, what I do think uh, many Israelis do understand, however, is that uh, a replay, even if there is a disagreement, and let's stipulate that there probably is one, uh, on returning to the JCPOA, a replay of a public uh, clash uh, that would uh, compromise the ability to have the intimate uh, sharing of intelligence and planning for the next phase of this policy uh, wouldn't really serve Israel's interests. And so there's a lot of discussion really across a, a wide range of the political spectrum that stipulating the disagreement, uh, the goal should absolutely be to have a very professional, a very quiet, very uh, closed uh, discussion with the United States. Uh, because even if you disagree on JCPOA return, there's the next phase. What the Biden administration has talked about consistently as well is its desire to achieve a longer and stronger agreement that extends the deadlines, that covers more technologies, that has tougher inspections, that deals in some way with missiles and, and Iran's regional activities as well. And on that, I think there's a great deal more convergence between Israeli and U.S. positions and probably a lot of others, Gulf and European positions as well. And so there's an opportunity if that uh, if that dialogue can get uh, going uh, to uh, coordinate and influence and uh, really make that a joint project, uh, looking past the uh, disagreement on the first step. One more question on Iran, and then I'm going to turn to audience questions because we have several. Israeli officials like Defense Minister Benny Gantz last week or IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kochavi in January have indicated that Israel is updating its plans to unilaterally strike Iranian nuclear infrastructure. How do you think such statements have landed with the Biden administration? Well, I probably won't speak for the Biden administration, but I'll just say this. I mean, look, there are different views uh, within the Israeli system. Uh, you've cited some of those statements uh, by the, the, the IDF chief of staff and, and by some other officials. Uh, but there's also been criticism voiced about the speech he gave in which he uh, in which he stated that uh, uh, re, uh, re uh, reviewing and refreshing the military options. 
um, from within the system uh, of, uh, of Israeli uh, uh, security officials. Um, but look, uh, in a way, it's not that surprising. Uh, Israel uh, would have every reason and every interest to establish at the beginning of this new administration uh, for the whole world's consideration, its uh, sovereign decision-making, uh, that it uh, has uh, its own, uh, it will make its own decisions when it perceives its security and certainly when it perceives it's facing an existential threat uh, are, are in question. Uh, that's a kind of message to send certainly to the United States, to Iran, to others in the region, those who stand with Israel, perhaps some of the Gulf states, uh, maybe to European uh, actors as well, uh, so that they bear in mind uh, that uh, how seriously Israel takes this. I you know, whether or not the speech was fully authorized, whether or not this is a, a strategy or just the different voices in the Israeli system kind of making themselves heard, uh, it's understandable uh, that that would, uh, that would be a, a kind of a reestablishing of a, ba- a basic principle that they have the right, and they do as a sovereign nation, uh, to act when they uh, feel uh, that the need requires it. Uh, you know, when there was a lot of discussion about a possible Israeli strike in an earlier period in the 2000. 10, 11, 12 period, uh, there were aspects of that that were actually quite useful uh, to the United States as it was going to other countries and urging them to join a very tough sanctions regime uh, against Iran. And one of the arguments, and this is a little bit crude, but it was essentially, you know, it's much better that we all together pressure Iran uh, to uh, contain its nuclear program that way than leave it to, you know, other actors, Israelis among them, who may feel that they just have to take matters into their own hands. And, and you know, one could understand that they might in certain circumstances. Of course, the United States has its own military option. That's something else that was uh, developed during the Obama administration. I, I haven't been seeing the intelligence or the military planning in four years, but I'm sure it's still uh, it's still there. And if it needs updating, and that's something else that U.S. and Israel can can talk about and coordinate about, uh, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. But even having laid out that principle uh, and established that uh, that idea in people's minds, uh, it doesn't replace the need. Uh, to have that intimate uh, U.S.-Israeli consultative mechanism, which I think is getting underway really in these days, uh, so that uh, you know each side is contributing what it can in terms of intelligence, in terms of analysis, uh, as much as possible. We're charting a common course toward the pressures and sanctions and incentives and negotiations that could uh, draw Iran toward a much better deal over time, uh, knowing that uh, together or separately, there are other options available uh, to make sure that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon. On that, there's total agreement uh, as a as a fundamental strategic objective, ensuring Iran never gets a nuclear weapon. And so, all of these different aspects are relevant uh, to ensuring that that doesn't ever happen. Uh, much much better, of course, when the United States and Israel are in a in a very very coordinated approach uh, to achieving that goal. Okay, so I'm going to get to some audience questions. We have a question from. John Allen, the former Canadian ambassador to Israel, who asks, why do you and the U.S. oppose the decision by the ICC? Do you agree, as Bibi suggests, that it's anti-Semitism at heart? Uh, well, of course, in the first instance, the ICC has no jurisdiction. Uh, Israel is not a member state of the ICC, did not sign uh, the Rome Statute, or at least never ratified it, uh, just as the United States is not a member of the ICC. And uh, it's very clear uh, that the ICC does not have jurisdiction uh, to conduct these investigations. 
uh, unless uh, there are member states or it's authorized by the UN Security Council. So that's an overstepping uh, of the bounds uh, of, of ICC jurisdiction. The other uh, reason uh, that an ICC investigation can uh, be uh, uh, kind of authorized or defended uh, is if the state in question does not have uh, a credible means and judicial process to do its own investigations and uh, and and look into its own content, conduct. Uh, and that does not, in my judgment, uh, fairly describe Israel, which has a long record of conducting investigations of uh, actions of its own uh, military. Uh, obviously, not everybody agrees with the outcome of every investigation, but it's quite professional. I know it pretty well from the inside, from uh, cases that were uh, looked into while I was ambassador. Uh, it's quite serious, um, and it ter- I ter- certainly think it meets the standards uh, that uh, don't require an external uh, investigator. And we, you know, generally know that these investigations come in with an agenda. Uh, just as one example, uh, the date set for uh, the uh, events that the ICC would be investigating is, uh, I want to say, June 13th, 2014, and events from June, June 13th forward, which obviously takes us into the period of uh, Operation Suketan, Operation uh, uh, Pillar of Defense, uh, uh, not Pillar of Defense, uh, uh, Edge. Uh, protective Edge, no. Protective Edge, thank you. Yeah. Operation Protective Edge uh, of 2014. But what happened the day before was the date that Hamas uh, terrorists in the West Bank kidnapped three uh, Israeli uh, teenagers, one of whom was also an American citizen, uh, and murdered them. And somehow, uh, even though they say, well, we'll also investigate Hamas actions, they, you know, the, the event that actually was the triggering event for all of the uh, terrible and violent uh, events of that summer uh, wasn't even defined into the mandate of this investigation. So uh, there's other reasons to suspect that there's other agendas at work here. Uh, So this is going to be the U.S. position. uh, And uh, hopefully, as the new prosecutor comes into office, he comes in in June, I believe, uh, uh, he uh, can uh, decide uh, together with perhaps his outgoing predecessor and and other professionals in the system that uh, this is not something that really needs to be pursued. It's just still in a very preliminary stage and and doesn't have to be taken to its uh, natural to its full extent. We have a couple of questions that are related, so I'm going to ask both of them, uh, and then ask you to respond. So Sam Bahur, hi Sam, asks: Given all who are aligned with two states, what or who prohibits the U.S. to recognize the state of Palestine? without fully defined borders, just as in the United States recognition of Israel that was done in 1948. I note this would not be groundbreaking since over 70% of the world's countries have already recognized Palestine as such. And then Susie Betcher, and I hope I pronounced your last name correctly, Susie, asks, I'd like to hear Dan's views on recognition of the state of Palestine now rather than as an outcome of negotiations and whether he thinks there is any possibility that Biden administration is supporting such a move by France, for example. Elon Goldenberg, uh, who is an advisor for Israel Policy Forum, wrote about recognition as an option a couple of months ago, so it's not entirely off the wall. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not anticipating that that's going to be part of the Biden administration's approach, the, the longstanding U.S. position, again, through many administrations that have supported a two-state outcome that looks a lot like what I think that this administration supports, uh, have felt that it needs to be the result of direct negotiations. And 
that uh, Palestinians uh, far too often have stayed out of those negotiations uh, when it would have been in their interest to be in them and when American administrations have actually been motivated to try to help them achieve uh, achieve their objectives. So cutting to the end before that uh, decision is reached through negotiations, I think is uh, is uh, is not uh, the approach that I'm I'm most comfortable with. Uh, you know what's interesting is there are some new ideas circulating in the Israeli uh, discourse as well. Uh, Yair Lapid, who heads the Yesh Atid party uh, and is running sort of second in terms of the size of the party in most polls, um, uh, he's uh, uh, perhaps the uh, well certainly the leader of the largest party that says he is for a two-state solution, and he says something very interesting. He says. Yeah, we don't actually need to settle everything to have two states. Uh, we could have two states uh, that disagree on their border, uh, which, of course, occurs in between many neighboring states. We could have two states that disagree on the status of Jerusalem. Uh, we could have two states that disagree on the issues of right of return um, and yet be two states that recognize one another uh, and uh, negotiate and deal with those disputes between two sovereign states. That's an interesting model. I can't say it's uh, uh, been endorsed or adopted by uh, the vast majority of, uh, of, of Israelis, but it's on the table and in the discourse uh, to the extent that issue is being discussed in this election. And, you know, look, obviously we're right before an Israeli election. Uh, the United States uh, will want to uh, have a, a serious conversation with whoever is the next prime minister and uh, and taking into account what that coalition looks like. There, of course, may be a Palestinian election later this year. That's uh, maybe a little less certain, but it is uh, certainly a possibility. And there's certainly Palestinian leadership changes in the in the air. Um, and so, you know, there's going to be a need since we're only now re-engaging the Palestinian uh, leadership after four, three years of, of very little U.S.-Palestinian uh, discourse. Uh, to hear their views and, and take them into account. So I don't rule out any uh, possible, uh, you know, uh, arrangement as those conversations unfold, depending on what they produce. Uh, and it may be that we have to be creative and, and look at new options. But, you know, I start from the principle that these things are best decided through uh, direct negotiations. Um, and then uh, let's see how the conversations go with these leaders uh, in the months ahead. Allison Cipriani asks, the Biden administration has emphasized its determination to push governments toward democracy. Why has there been no discussion about the apparent lack of democracy in the Palestinian Authority? Uh, the Biden administration is uh, as focused on this issue as I think on almost any other in their foreign policy. Uh, Secretary Blinken and President Biden have both spoken to it uh, rather extensively. Uh, you can see it in the engagements uh, they're having with foreign leaders. Uh, President Biden, I guess by now, has spoken, besides Russia and China, the global strategic rivals you're going to have to deal with for things like arms control and the pandemic and climate change, uh, almost all of his calls uh, to foreign leaders have been to democratically elected foreign leaders. Last few days, there have been a couple of others, King Salman of Saudi Arabia before the uh, Jamal Khashoggi decision and, and, and maybe one or two others. But, uh, you know, he has talked a lot for a long time about uh, a summit of democracies. Uh, he's now talking very firmly about strengthening our own democracy at home. And we've seen how uh, fragile it is. Uh, as a model, and then working with other countries to strengthen their democracies uh, and to resist this push from the autocratic, uh, the club of autocracies about their mm -hmm. the, the value of their system. 
Um, and so, look, this is going to be uh, a discourse and you could perhaps say a source of tension uh, with uh, Arab states who are U.S. partners, uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, others, Egypt, uh, but clearly are not democracies, aren't anything close to democracies, uh, have serious uh uh, uh, flaws in their human rights uh, conduct. Uh, and uh, it's going to affect those relationships to some degree. And the same may be true with the Palestinians as, as well, uh, that uh, there should be an expectation that as Palestinians move toward independence, as we hopefully they, hopefully they can during uh, this administration and perhaps beyond, and a two-state solution really becomes uh, viable, that the Palestinian state that emerges will be democratic. Now, uh, there's a near-term test of that, of course, with these elections that have been called. Uh, and we all know the history that sometimes elections have been called uh, and the Palestinian leadership has uh, split. Uh, Fatah and Hamas have decided it's in each of their own interest for it not to happen. So they find a reason not to do it. Or one of them decides that it's in their interest and they find an excuse. Or Israel uh, doesn't permit uh, voting in East Jerusalem, and that becomes a reason not to have it. Uh, and we know that the United States has struggled with this as well. An election that the United States pushed for in 2006 brought Hamas, uh, a foreign terrorist organization designated under U.S. law, uh, into a leadership role in the Palestinian Authority and really compromised the U.S. ability to uh, uh, to, to work with Palestinians. It certainly raised questions for Israelis about uh, whether they would have a terrorist state uh, next to them if a two-state solution happened. So uh, these are all tough issues, uh, but uh, on the principle of should the Palestinian people have the right to choose their leaders and live in a society where the people have a voice, their rights are respected, uh, democracy reigns, uh, I don't think it's any different for Palestinians than for anybody else. Uh, and I believe that will be the Biden administration uh, approach, which may mean some tension uh, at times uh, on how elections are conducted, when they are, uh, other aspects of Palestinian governance, just as it may uh, with some of these other Arab states. A follow-up from uh, an anonymous questioner about Palestinian elections. In view of the hopefully presidential elections in Palestine, what should and would be the policy of the U.S., to the election of uh, Barghouti, who of course is serving, I think five life terms for murder in Israeli prison. Um, so what, what would be the reaction to the election of Barghouti who will get the most votes according to all surveys? Will Barghouti's election help the US goal of two states? Uh, that's a great question, and I don't know uh, what the Biden administration's answer would be. I, I've seen these polls and uh, there's no question he uh, he is a serious uh, factor uh, in Palestinian politics until, of course, votes happen. One can't really be sure. Um, and I think it would occasion a very serious uh, conversation with Palestinian leaders, with Israeli leaders, uh, to try to understand uh, what uh, it means, uh, what opportunity it presents, what challenges it presents on, on principles, on uh, on his record, uh, which does include uh, uh, terrorist attacks that uh, that took uh, took the lives of, of innocent people, um, uh, we also know that uh, in various uh, uh, conflicts in history, uh, leaders have moved from that status of uh, having conducted their uh, uh, their struggle violently into a different status, uh, and uh, there is some history about that in other conflicts. 
Um, but I don't want to predict. Uh, it's very problematic. Uh, as I said, he's a, he is a relevant figure. Uh, he has influence. He has importance. Uh, he also has a record, uh, and he is serving those sentences because of that record. Um, uh, but uh, I don't want to think. I don't think I can predict exactly what the outcome or the, the meaning of of him winning that election would be. We have a question from uh, our friend Fred Lane from your hometown. Uh, Fred asks, given the extensive intermixing of isolated or non-contiguous settlements in the West Bank, isn't it unrealistic to think that there can be a successful two-state solution without Israel abandoning those isolated settlements? The uh, uh, the Obama administration did some very significant mapping uh, of settlements, and it's continued in think tanks uh, after uh, that administration. Uh, and it's certainly, if you look at the footprint uh, of all the different uh, settlements, uh, it's hard to see a contiguous Palestinian state being viable if Israel retains uh, a control of those. Now, that was sort of envisioned in the Trump plan, which is one of the reasons I didn't think the Trump plan represented anything like a viable uh, two-state solution. Um, there's all kinds of questions about what could be the disposition of settlements uh, in a Palestinian state, whether the people who live there, the Israelis who live there could stay there, whether they would leave, whether Israel would bring them out, uh, as it did uh, when it left Gaza, uh, all uh, issues that uh, that have to be negotiated. But look, uh, it, it's clear that uh, the more settlements expand uh, deeper in the West Bank, certainly east of the security barrier, uh, outside main blocks that have often been considered candidates for territorial swaps and where the vast majority of Israeli settlers live uh, and would have much, much less impact on the, on the total territory and the, and the uh, divisibility or the, the contiguity of the remaining territory. Um, it's clear that the more those expand, uh, the harder this becomes. I, I can recall many uh, discussions uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu in an earlier period, in the period of George Mitchell and John Kerry's uh, peace efforts in which he very freely acknowledged uh, that uh, settlements uh, in the blocks represented one thing, but settlements beyond the barrier and, and beyond the blocks uh, were things that he understood, uh, if one was serious about keeping a two-state solution alive, would have to be uh, have to be dealt with differently, constrained uh, in their growth, and uh, you know dealt with differently in the negotiations on their disposition. Uh, so it's a serious issue. It's why it's one of the reasons there are many, uh, but one of the reasons people uh, have said uh, two states is getting harder and some have said it's now impossible. There are other reasons uh, having to do with attitudes and having to do with leadership and having to do with uh, uh, things that have happened on both sides. So I don't want to say that's the only issue, but certainly uh, if even just taking that issue in isolation, it's one of the reasons people say uh, two states may not be possible. I personally think it is possible, but some hard decisions will need to be made around those settlements. And certainly nothing should be done now that makes that harder, that expands them further, that uh, makes the, the territory that's uh, available for a Palestinian state less contiguous uh, than it already is. So I, uh, I acknowledge that that's a, a major, major hurdle. We have a question from our good friend Abner Goldstein on the West Coast who asks, is a confederation a potential more practical and realistic arrangement than a two-state solution? And I would just note, um, we, we should put in the chat a link to Israel Policy Forum's uh, study from last year, which you wrote a wonderful forward for called In Search of a Viable Option, which does look at confederation among other uh, 
not really alternatives, but other options that have been bandied about. And Confederation certainly is getting talked about a lot, even as we speak. So, Dan, do you want to address that, please? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think the uh, Israel Policy Forum study that uh, uh, Susie references is the, the best that I have seen in evaluating uh, the different non-two-state uh, alternatives or, or pathways. Uh, all of them, in my judgment, are, are much worse, and I think the study mem- demonstrates that than two states for U.S. interests, for Israeli interests, for Palestinian interests, for regional interests. Um, and, uh, and so I commend everyone to, to take a look at that study. Uh, one of the problems of trying to evaluate confederation is that different people mean different things uh, when they say it. Uh, and uh, the version studied in, in that IPF uh, document uh, is a particular version uh, it, that sort of merges uh, the concepts of, uh, of, of, of two states separate, but also as kind of one, in one overriding entity. There's a different, uh, and it doesn't work very well, there's a different version of confederation in which actually two states are firmly established as fully independent and then freely choose to have a kind of an association uh, which allows them to share resources and uh, have some joint economic uh, uh, structures. Uh, that's a little bit different and perhaps a little bit easier to imagine. Um, I, I don't think uh, the version that's studied in the, in the IDF doc, IPF document uh, it really, really answers the, the needs. Uh, it, it calls too much into question, does Israel still retain its Jewish and democratic character? Do Palestinians still have uh, their uh, fundamental uh, rights of, uh, of independence in a state of their own? Uh, and it, it blurs into the sort of one state uh, models that uh, also are being bandied about a bit, uh, and which I think are are totally unworkable, and on which there's almost no support among either Israelis or Palestinians for. So it seems to me that uh, a confederation is is potentially kind of a second order question if you can get to something that is really a viable uh, actual two state solution, and then allow those two states to confederate in a way that that serves both in, both sides' interests, uh, but to sort of uh, skip that first step and, and go to some blurred uh, model uh, of not two states, not one state, but just two sort of uh, overlapping entities, uh, to me, is a lot less workable. We have time for one more question, uh, since we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, this is from Jean Berger. The Jewish National Fund, Karen Kayemet Israel, otherwise known as Kakal, board announcement of a desire to buy Palestinian land. Actually, I think it was not a desire. I think it was a change in policy about being able to buy private Palestinian land in Area C, should it be adopted in the upcoming vote, which I understand is going to be held after the elections, would clearly handicap efforts towards a two-state solution. Meanwhile, donations to JNFUS are tax deductible. Do you know if the Biden administration is examining the contradiction that these tax-exempt donations are working against U.S. policy? Do you think they would or should review JNF's tax-exempt charitable status? And I just would add very quickly, Dan, as I understand it, JNF in the United States doesn't uh, primarily fund the activities of Karen Kayemet Israel, although there is money, I think maybe a million dollars a year, that goes into the West Bank from JNF funds in the U.S. I could be wrong about that, but that's my. Could you just quickly address yeah. this issue? Well, I don't know what the Biden administration might be uh, looking at internally on this. Um, I think at the time that first announcement was uh, was made, I tweeted. Uh, this doesn't seem like this does not seem like a good idea, and it's not. 
Uh, and it's for the reason I stated earlier that that anything that uh, uh, works inconsistent with the goal of a two-state solution, obviously buying up additional land for the purpose of expanding settlements uh, is is inconsistent with that is not 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 very helpful. Now uh, you, you you correctly stated, Susie, although the details are are more technical than I think I'm able to to describe, there is a distinction between the JNF uh, in the United States and the KKL, JNF uh, organization in Israel. There's some relationship, but it's much looser than it used to be. So I can't really address the question of whether contributions to the American organization that are tax deductible uh, fall into this category, or I have no idea if the donation, if any donations to the Israeli entity are tax deductible. Uh, so I really can't get to the question of whether the Biden administration will look at that question. I think, uh, but uh, but when, when I said that um, the organizing principle and the framework of judging U.S. actions, Israeli, Palestinian, Arab state, European actions, and outside organizations uh, would be, does it, uh, is it consistent with, does it help contribute to, or does it harm uh, prospects for a two-state solution? This would clearly fall into the harm category. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, Once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. And again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox, and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings and a host of digital resources. Stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, March 16th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Dan, thank you so much. It's good to see you. I hope to get to see you in person one on one side of the ocean or the other in the near future. Thanks, Susie. Great to see thank you. Thank you Bye. so much. Erev to, to that, Dan. Bye.